Welcome to a special Story Story Night podcast featuring Starry Story Night, Orion. I'm your host and artistic director, Jody Eichelberger. Starry Story Night draws connections between individual stories in the way we draw lines between the stars to form constellations. It is our only scripted show at Story Story Night. The text is read by the storytellers themselves, and the words are nearly all their own. I took either their written submission, a transcript of a recorded interview, or a mixture of both and then edited the stories together into the script. A special thank you to our guest musicians from the Boise Philharmonic, and also a note about how some of the music is integrated into the show. Right now, the Boise Phil Brass Quintet is playing Contrapunctus III, a fugue by Bach. A fugue is a composition that introduces a melody in one instrument, which is taken up by the other instruments, and this theme is developed through interweaving parts. It struck me that this is exactly what this show is doing with the storytellers, with the interweaving parts on a theme. So later in the show, you'll find I took an instrument and paired them with a storyteller. We deconstructed the fugue to reveal the part of just one instrument while we also focus on a single storyteller. And then we'll bring it all back together again in the end. Recorded live on October 29th, 2019 at Jump in Boise, Idaho, our storytellers are Glida Bothwell, Don Brockett, Brian Husky, Bob McMichael, Salome Mwangi, and Sierra Partica. Now for stories that shine. It's story time. This I do remember. My grandmother lived in the countryside. No streetlights. This I have learned. To defeat the demon, you must hold your ground and appear large. When I was about five years old, I went to the Mojave Desert with my grandparents. They built a cabin on a small parcel of desolate land they'd won in a lottery after World War II. Cinder block construction, flat roof, no plumbing, electricity, heat, or cooling. No street lights. Actually, no lights in the building even. Just a box with a few small windows and a couple doors. 
kerosene lamps, a cooler, and a water jug. That's all they needed. I was fortunate to grow up where I did. Just a hop over the neighbor's backyard and a country road later were hundreds of undeveloped acres to explore. The large tracts of chaparral land butted up against the Deschutes River, which flowed through a beautiful basalt canyon between the towns of Bend and Tumalo, Oregon. I was just back in Montana. There's this time in my early life where it feels there's something perfect about it, and it's, it's a flash. My grandmother's house was on top of a hill, and at night we would lay on the grass, and it felt like laying on top of this orb, and we were looking at the vast stars. I remember it being very warm at night, hardly any breeze, and the sky is black as obsidian. No moon that night, and no light pollution there in 1967. The voice sneers that peace lies in dimming the lights of the world to black. What would it feel like to be drowning in the black of night? Evaporating obligations and responsibilities and ties that bind. Or lost and clinging to a tree trunk or rock, shaking with terror as hypothermia, sickness, or injury have your existence firmly locked in its jaws. The hunter like myself who prefers to go in alone is exposed to such risks at a higher level. I prefer solitude, despite feeling hunted throughout most of my life. My dad and I would take our old Ford truck and drive it out to the dump, and my dad will still say to this day, Arco has the prettiest dump in the whole world. <laughs> it's in this teeny tiny little valley, and if we're not paying attention, we can avoid noticing the sinkhole full of trash. But if we look up, we can see the beautiful, beautiful Milky Way. No light pollution, we're out in the middle of nowhere. There's telephone wires, and they're doing this little fizzing sort of thing. And so if we're perfectly quiet, we can hear the fizzing of telephone wires and prairie dog chirps. And then there's just sky, just everywhere. It's ridiculous and crazy and so beautiful. The moon was out and cast a silvery glow over the landscape. On the nights that the moon was bright, we could see the snow on top of Mount Kenya gleaming. Light from the moon takes 1.3 seconds to reach Earth. Sometimes I wonder, did I imagine that? There's no real duration to that time, but it feels still very real in that moment. I remember learning long ago that a dream, which seems to take hours, happens in less than a second of waking time. Yeah, we used to do that. My father was outside with the archaic three-inch Galileo telescope pointed at the rising supermoon. Every crater and ridge distinct in the reflected light of our sun, displaying every detail in black and white beauty. Majestic and huge, she claimed respect and floated into the sky where she could be the spotlight of the night. Why is the moon so big? I asked my father curiously. He was the kind of dad you could ask why the sky was blue, and he would actually answer you, which I always appreciated. I still love that about him. It's a supermoon tonight, he said. It's always the same size, but because it's closer to Earth tonight, it looks like it's bigger. We stood together in the light of the moon until I started to doze off. I laid down on a cot outside and looked up at the sky. The stars were so thick on that distant black canvas that they looked like paste.
but I knew they were stars, even though I didn't know what stars actually were. I also knew they were really far away. What we didn't figure out, this is what constellation this is. This is me, this is that. But I do remember just staring at the vastness of the stars and drinking in the wonder of it. I wonder. I looked and looked. I stared at those stars, trying to see each one of them. I tried to give them each their due, tried to separate them from each other by noticing anything I could that would accomplish this task. My father trained me to pick things out that others would absolutely miss. And to this day, I am always the first to spot wildlife or to spot a deviation from the norm. I looked and looked. My dad did a bit of fur trapping in the 80s, and as an impressionable young kid, I soaked up everything he'd perfected in the process of setting and checking bobcat, badger, and coyote traps. I think he was just doing what he did and kind of talking me through it. I learned at a very young age to identify all kinds of tracks, and reading the ground below me became a very satisfying thrill. Some stars appeared brighter than others, there seemed to be groups of stars, like families. I tried imagining that some were closer to Earth than others. Starlight takes much longer to reach the Earth and the Moon, depending on the location of the star and its origin. The light from Betelgeuse, the star that is Orion's right shoulder, takes 650 years to reach us. If it were to supernova this very second, we would not be able to see that brightened glow until the year 2665. The stars we see could burn out any day. I was rocked by the sudden thought that Earth might be just like one of those stars. Then it occurred to me that I and everything I knew of the world could just as easily not exist. In moments of overwhelm, I wished to disappear, to fade into stardust. Dizzy and with thoughts like stars, circling my field of reality, I begin to believe the voice, finding fault with my simple contentment. Before I knew it, a wave of nausea overtook me, and I ran inside, weeping, terrified, and embarrassed. Just staring up at the vastness of the stars and drinking in the wonder of it. This is not a love story. At least, I don't think it is. 
I am too young to pretend to know how large a narrative love can hold. I let myself go, head over heels in love. I have fallen in love with the cosmos, wistfully sighing with nostalgia when I think about my keystone experience at three in the morning with my parents, my sparklers, and my light rockets. If a dog can know love, he knows mine. Love underscores the plots of epic sagas. It holds the extremities of human existence. It soothes the unnamed condition. It heals all things. But you don't know my father. The days leading up to our hunt were a struggle to get My everything suffered. This new place, its expansive roadless areas, and wide array of occupied elk habitat gave my imagination license to run wild. More than ever before, I allowed myself to hope for daydream-like encounters with mature rutting bulls. I let myself go, head over heels in love with what I envisioned the season would deliver. I never thought of myself as a hunter. Sure, I hunted for my car keys, my glasses, and other items. But as for killing live animals, I wasn't that kind of hunter. I must have been eight or nine years old on a walk by myself near my grandparents' cabin in the Mojave, carrying the BB gun I shouldn't have been entrusted with. My dad gave me a pink BB gun for Christmas. I set out of camp aware, but not intimidated by the fact that it was my last day to hunt. My step had a decent bounce to it, and I was still gleefully taking in all of this new country. As a teen, I went duck hunting on the Ohio River but I didn't carry a gun and I never saw a duck and as we hunkered down underneath a smelly tarp. It was important to my mom that I know how to use a gun, so I do know how to use a gun. My favorite desert animal, a horned lizard, made itself known by skidding across the sand under a nearby mesquite bush. As I went in for a closer look, the lizard froze. I'd never been this lucky. I had killed lots of flies, mosquitoes, spiders, and one time I killed a snake with a hoe. My mother, who was deathly afraid of snakes, kept yelling from 50 feet away, kill it, kill it. I'd never had the good fortune to see one of these beautiful horned creatures at such a small distance. I wanted to capture more than the moment, so I shot it at least 10 times at point-blank range. Kill it, kill it! A thrill of evil flooded through me, and when it abated and I understood what I'd done, I crumpled into the sand, put my hand over the expiring beast, and cried hysterically. Every year since moving to Idaho in 1971, my husband would apply for hunting tags. He hunted for bird, deer, elk, antelope, Every year, that was the meat we ate through the year. The beast of a feast. But my husband had never gotten an antelope permit. One year in the late 1970s, to increase his chances for an antelope tag, he also entered my name. You don't have to shoot it, he told me, but I would need to go along as the official tag holder. My father is a nature photographer, and a really great nature photographer, and he was also a hunter. 
My mom was a far better hunter, exceptional. She was always the first to fill her tags in our community, which was definitely a matter of pride in this very macho Montana small town. But she's literally a perfect shot. So she still goes to the range today, and it's just like basically there's one hole, and <laughs> she's a perfect shot. I may have hit the target once on the outside. <laughs> she was the better hunter, but she also felt like it was purposeful in terms of feeding family and this kind of thing. She didn't get some big kick out of it, so she would fill her tags, and that was the meat we ate through the year. And then my dad would do his best to fill his tags, so deer, elk, antelope every year. Lucky me, I won the antelope lottery. I'd never been this lucky. Normally, this is where my luck would run out. I told my hunter husband, if my name is on the tag, I will kill it myself. Besides, I wanted it to be legal, and I also wanted to assert myself and do something I had never done. The carnivore restaurant in Nairobi, Kenya, is also known as the beast of a feast. The restaurant has a club adjacent to it, and after one has had their fill of fire-roasted game meat, it is only fitting to dance off some of the excess energy on one of the three dance floors. The carnivore, or carni, as we fondly refer to it, is located on the edge of the Nairobi National Park. Grace and I had been friends for as long as we had worked together at an international bank in Kenya. She was the more laid back of the two of us. She once enticed me to skip going to work in the afternoon and instead watch a movie at one of the movie theaters in Nairobi. She had a smug look on her face as we joined the throngs of hardworking Kenyans heading home at 5 p.m. after we had played hooky. I, on the other hand, felt ashamed of myself and hoped that no one saw us and our misdeeds of the day. The Sunday after the Christmas of 1997 felt like it needed to be celebrated with a more adult theme, especially since we had spent the holidays with our respective families, playing the role of respectable daughters, sisters, etc. I called Grace, proposing that we spend the time adulting, to which she complied, as long as I could find a ride. She was game. John worked with us at the bank, and after he picked Grace and I up and deposited us safely at the Carnie, he promised to be our ride home after the night was over. My father had a lot of free time, so I spent a lot of time with him as a kid, and it was wonderful. He was the best dad when I was a kid. I was just back in Montana in that area. There's this time in my early life where it feels there's something perfect about it, and it's, it's a flash. There's no real duration to that time, but it feels still very real in that moment. This was in that area of Montana that I'm speaking about where they hunted every year. So my dad and I would go out into the mountains or forests or Yellowstone National Park or Grand Teton National Park or Harriman State Park or... National Forest Land in eastern Idaho. The Nairobi National Park is the only one of its kind in the world since it is found within the Nairobi city limits. It is not uncommon to see pictures posted on social media outlets of wild animals posing on highways. My father was far more often hunting with his camera than with a gun, and the secret behind good nature photography is patience. And he had that in spades. 
So we would be out in nature with nothing but time and no real goal aside from if there was something to capture. We paid attention to things like when the goats on the Grand Teton were calving, and we'd try to go get pictures of the babies. For some reason, animals were a bigger part of my interest than plants. Bird watching, field guides, identification, tracking were part of the game my brother and I played to become most expert. I spent recess in elementary school in the library training to be the biologist I wish I'd become. He would train me in perception. He was a really natural teacher. I'm studying physics with an astrophysics emphasis at Boise State University. Astronomy is my passion. I just want to do something remarkable like that. And that's why, that's why I'm studying astronomy. Because everything is so big and so hot or so cold and so invisible or something like that. And, and crazy and dangerous and amazing and frightening and other superlatives. I just think that it's the most superlative thing of anything that can be, you know? So if I can somehow connect myself to that, I'll be, I don't know, proud of myself? I got sidetracked by other things, music mostly. I play the bagpipes, but as the years passed, yeah, it's music. <laughs> I heard that. The focus of my interest, the focus of my interest in nature sharpened and centered on alpine forests and their wildlife. And although I knew of hunting, it never entered my mind until much later. But so he would, he would train me in perception, I guess. And I didn't realize it was happening at the time. But I think he was just doing what he did and kind of talking me through it. He was a really natural teacher. He was the kind of dad that you would ask why the sky was blue. And he would actually answer you, which I always appreciated. I still love that about him. He trained me to pick things out that others would absolutely miss. And to this day, I'm always the first to spot wildlife or to spot a deviation from the norm. I'm a really good editor. And I think as a result of that as well, I hunt out these things that shouldn't be there. That's how I approach most everything, kind of big picture and dial it in from there. My parents, who split up just about this time, they each treated me to nature in such a way that it became very attractive at a young age. After the divorce, my father pretty well disappeared for some amount of time, so it wasn't an option. He was absolutely disappeared deadbeat dad for quite a while. Involuntarily estranged for years. I had been invited to go along with the guys on other hunting trips, but not wanting to be the camp cook, I declined. <laughs> Besides, getting a babysitter for our two small boys to go camping with dirty, smelly, farting guys was not my idea of a vacation. When hunting did enter my mind, it was extremely negative, born from watching fat guys in camo on four-wheelers with gun racks, <laughs> heading behind our cabin bordering National Forest land in eastern Idaho. Having spent most summers hiking there and occasionally finding trash in places I couldn't believe anyone would disrespect by littering, these guys, in my mind then, were the culprits. And this made hunting just as bad. Ending up a tree hugger wasn't something I planned, and I'm not really exactly that anyway, but to these imaginary assholes, I would most definitely be an embracer of the conifers. And these guys made it easy to throw the baby of hunting out with the bathwater of messing up nature. 
I admired the evidence of an elaborate beaver complex that years ago had flooded what was once a good-sized aspen grove. All of the trees had died and since fallen into what nature had transformed into a meadow. The dam had long ago blown out and no beavers had since undergone reconstruction efforts. Just portions of the old dam remained in the deforested creek bottom. I was pondering the timeline of these events as I made my way up the finger that I'd planned to climb to survey the larger network of feeder canyons and folds. I'd barely made it out of the trees and into the deadhead phase of the climb when in the distance, off to my right, a figure caught my eye. Three or so hundred yards to my right, strolling along the neighboring ridgeline was a large bull elk. He was a hell of a bull with main beams that extended well above the significant hump in his back as he fed. He tilted his head back and bugled casually into the gray morning light. I had taken a knee in the sagebrush and captured all of this on video. According to the Greek astronomer Aristophanes, Orion's father was likely the sea god Poseidon. In the words of Euripides, the great Greek playwright, to a father growing old, nothing is dearer than a daughter. Aristotle considered him to be the most tragic of the playwrights, likely because his works shifted the focus from gods to man, driving the tragedy deeper into the core of daily living. He was among the first to allow for intelligence in slave characters and depth in female characters. Around 3rd century BC in Greece, the seafaring population began to use certain stars, like those in the Big Dipper and Polaris, to navigate their ships by orienting the tip of their ships towards the star they were using. My father could learn something from Euripides, who lived nearly 1,500 years ago. My father, who is now growing old without the dear benefit of his daughter. Like a shipwreck in the distance. My father who laughed at and dismissed boundaries. My father who took up every square inch of space in the room, in my world, in my mind. He believed that it was his to take. I use the stars much like the old sailors, to make sure I know where I'm going, to keep a steady course. When I'm anxious or upset, I make dots on the back of my hands with fountain pens, mapping constellations, fictional planets, moons, asteroids, and galaxies. The more difficult the scenario, the more skin the image takes up. Every time I catch a glimpse of my artistic rendition of the cosmos, I'm encouraged to focus and push through what's challenging me. I didn't see any other elk with him at first. I reached behind my head and removed my grunt tube that rides like a stovepipe out the top of my backpack. From this distance, I could bugle back at him and get a read whether he wanted to rumble or preferred to keep his morning on the calmer side of things. I plucked the diaphragm call from the zippered pocket on my left arm 
and placed it on my tongue. As I put the tube under my arm, pointing it downward and behind me, I pressed my mouth against the end like a bagpipe player does. With tight and controlled pressure from my own diaphragm, I pushed a careful stream of high-pressure air between the tip of my tongue and the stretched latex of the call. Manipulating the sounds to scale from an ultra-high-pitched beginning into a gentle wave of tones, the air from my lungs came to life, magnified and reverberating by the acoustic qualities of the grunt tube. The bull turned and looked my direction, then sounded his own reply. His response and behavior was far from aggressive, though, and he sauntered uphill to where I now noticed a group of cows materialize from a stand of trees. He and the scattered group of elk all pointed in the same direction now. I am not a pack animal. I do not embrace the protective comforts of community. Deep, quiet, enduring aloneness rejuvenates and strengthens me, prepares me to outrun the monster. They were moving away from me and my challenge, but not with any urgency. This reaction was not what I'd hoped for, but about what I'd expected. At absolute not-the-drill pace, I made my way up and around the ridge as I quickly as I could, taking extreme care to be quiet as humanly possible. Normally, this is where my luck would run out. I controlled my breathing to a level that I could aim and shoot at my all-time best. This as I maintained attentive eyes, scanning efficiently and accurately to spot any animal that's known nothing but vigilance from stalking predators every day of its wilderness existence. My dad trained me to move through the world as resilient prey, a dangerous assignment ever more so given that the hunter lived within. I love my dad almost as much as I can't stand him. Ours is not a standard issue father-daughter story of angel and demon behavior, of wit and charm, frustration and rebellion, followed predictably by reconciliation. Truth is, I don't really know what a standard issue father-daughter story is. I have seen some from a distance. They look a lot like Disney to me, delightful, but terribly unrealistic under the laws of my natural world. Where there is no daddy-daughter dance, there is only destruction. Ours is an oil field aflame, a wealth of possibility turned toxic, irrelevant, and permanently mind-altering. 20 years later, I killed my second animal, a pheasant, an albino pheasant, on a game farm with my brother in eastern Washington. It was spring, and I didn't know enough about hunting to realize the abnormality of this experience, at least as far as hunting goes. Most hunting seasons are in the fall. It was a strange and unique event for me, but the killing I did there was trumped by the very fact I was sharing it with my brother, from whom I'd felt involuntarily estranged for years. This moment represented to me a possibly miraculous reconciliation, and if I had to kill a few birds to make it happen, so be it. I enjoyed the hunting, and especially my first exposure to bird dogs, but because of my other interest in bonding, I didn't really honestly encounter the hunt for its own sake. In the end, I should have focused more on the birds. The other thing never happened. 
To prepare for my antelope hunt, my husband took me to the foothills north of Eagle, where he taught me how to aim and shoot at targets. He also gave me instructions in basic gun laws and safety. I may have hit the target once on the outside. We got right down to business as we ordered adult beverages and danced the night away. It was Sunday, and on Sundays, they play soul music, so 70s and 80s, and we were going out there that night. It almost felt like, not that we were, but it almost felt like we had bell-bottom pants and a fro, because that's the kind of music they were playing, and that's the kind of music we were interested in. The Temptations, Cool and the Gang, celebrate good times, come on. Yep, that is what we were there to do. We met many people that we knew and had a grand old time. But our concern grew since we had not seen John since he dropped us off. We did not let that dampen our spirits or the ones that we imbibed as we knew that John would not let us down. closer to 2 a.m. We started feeling restless and sat down to assess our situation. I'm not sure why we did not consider hiring a taxi for the ride home. Young blood, I guess. With regret, I, wa I waved off the celebration of victory brewing inside me. When the big day arrived, we kissed our little boys goodbye and told the sitter we'd be back in a few days. We drove our 1974 Blazer to the Lost River Range in eastern Idaho. It was a lovely fall day as we drove past Craters of the Moon and through Arco. My parents owned the campground in Arco. When I was 8 to 10 years old, I worked the front desk and did maintenance and we had chickens and stuff. We had a ground squirrel infestation 
and they would chew up the wires in the power boxes and the camping sites. A lot of the time, you would see ground squirrel holes in a little, in a little constellation, if you will, <laughs> on the ground, and my dad would have a dirt pile right next to the power box so he could get to the wires that had been chewed up so he could fix them. My dad gave me a pink BB gun for Christmas, and so my dad, every couple of evenings or so, would put me in the back of his truck, and he would have his BB gun, and I would have mine, and, you know, I'm a kid, and I'm weak, and I'm small, so I can't handle a real gun. And so he's like, all right, point it at those things, hold it like this, and shoot them. <laughs> Try your best to make them stop moving. <laughs> that sounds gross, but also bonding time with my dad. It's fun, let's do it. My dog, who is super hyper, would go out with us and trot alongside the truck, and we circle the campground and just drive really slow, glaring at the, at the squirrel holes. And one would pop up, Dad, Dad, there's one! And he would stop the truck, and we would just sit there for maybe two or three minutes. It only takes two or three minutes, because there's like a billion of them. And one of them's gonna show up eventually. We would sit there and wait, and one of us would give the signal and say, okay, now! I would shoot it, and I'd pull up my gun, and I'd be trying to frantically pump air into it, and I would try to shoot it again, but I'd miss. And usually he'd get the shot, and then my dog would go running over at it, because she would hear all of our commotion. She'd go, and she'd pick it up. She once picked it up and started throwing it around, and that was chaotic and nasty. But usually she'd just run up and start trying to dig at the hole, even if there was a dead squirrel right next to it. We saw a few antelope along the way, but this wasn't the district for our, or my, hunting permit. Beetlejuice, Orion's right shoulder. My shoulders, as we sat on one of the counters weighing our options, I was startled back to reality by a heavy leather coat that was dropped on my shoulders. The smell of rich leather permeated the air. While I was still gathering my wits to ask questions about the owner, he draped a heavy gold chain around my neck. Needless to say, he had my attention. When I turned around, I found myself face to face with a man who was not a total stranger, and yet I did not know him. He commented about how beautiful I looked with his jacket and the gold chain. I'm in bed reading about the philosophy of beauty at 4.19 a.m and my left arm is supporting Angus like a cradle. I feel the soft warmth of his fur, the trusting weight of his small Brittany body, his head resting in the crook of my elbow. His eyes dart and quiver with the rem of dreamy landscapes I wish I could see with him. His paws manipulate the undulations of imaginary geography. I imagine what his dreams are remembering for him. Fantastically surreal terrain of soft ground covered in native bunch grasses, behind each of which waits a covey of super partridges, each loaded with dew-enhanced scent. They scatter across the earth like stinky avian ghost trails. 
his eyes and body calm for a second. I remember learning long ago that a dream which seems to take hours happens in less than a second of waking time. So in his moment of eye calm, I imagine he stopped and pointed. I hope I'm in his dream. If a dog can know love, he knows mine. So I think there's a chance I'm with him in this episode. This matters to me somehow. I kind of warmed up to his compliments as the possibility of a ride home slowly came into focus. <laughs> Grace and I exchanged knowing looks. She then excused herself to use the restroom, though both of us knew that she was hunting for John. When she came back, I did the same, and both of us came back empty-handed. While she was gone, my newly found acquaintance offered to give us a ride home. I pretended that we were okay and that we were just waiting for a friend for the ride. After stalling for a while, Kim, let's call him Kim, offered his services for the ride. Grace and I glanced at each other and decided to take Kim up on his offer. I figured that with the two of us against one, we would make it. The bull broke into the opening and jogged across into the timber to join the rest of the herd. Cautiously, I continued to advance, spotting three or four of the cows as they fed their way uphill. I could see the bull too, as he closed the gap on his cows. Finally, the last of the cows crested out of sight, and I only had to keep eyes on the bull as I continued progress and in closing into range. Passing through a mix of tree trunks, boulders, and brush, I advanced each time the bull's vision was obstructed. He closed in on his herd, and I closed in on him, finally reaching the inner side of bow range, just as he crested and then dropped out of sight over a saddle garnished with sage and bitter brush. This was ultra alert time, high step walking up as quick and quiet as I possibly could. If the bull had dallied at all after cresting this flip of terrain, I had a matter of seconds to lay eyes on him still within bow range. Like a race to go as slow as possible, I scanned the blurry scene between the two horizons above me. Ear tips or antler tips, I told myself. My God, I hope for antler tips. A few frantic steps later, I saw just that, antler tips. Each of the 12 points were polished to a bright ivory shine before tapering downward into gnarled, dark chocolate bone, eventually dropping out of sight behind the brushy horizon. They rocked back and forth as the bull moved, which was mesmerizing. Bulls looked so good quartering away. But I didn't have time to enjoy the sight. There was no time to spare for risk of something going sideways. I had my rangefinder in hand and clicked it several times on the rack in the sagebrush around it. Safe, the left foot of Orion. Forty-two yards, money, so ultra-money, like the daydreams that have played in my mind since I was a child. I dipped back out of sight and once again unquivered my number one arrow, dropped it through the arrow rest and clicked it to my string. I closed the caliper of my release just below the knock. Tethered to my bow now and in an awkward crouch, I took a slow-motion lunge step up the hill and set my feet. 
Still in a low profile bend, I began the motion of drawing my bow, half of my body pushing the grip away and the other half pulling the string to me. Soon as the motion was complete, I began to straighten upright and rotate the bow vertically. While doing this, I leaned forward on a coaster-sized rock barely beneath the tip of my boot and it teetered up on end, then slipped free. Thump. Safe. Safe. The left foot of Orion. It's ironic that I don't feel safe walking in the dark, even though there's a star in the sky named Safe. The lazy antler tips snapped to attention and spun to face me head on. A startled glare fired directly back at me and I was busted. Although I topped the wall and was settled now in a full draw, I was still pointing the bow low and to the side as I raised up. I was in full camo, including my face. The timber behind me created a backdrop for my silhouette to blend with. I kept my head lowered, the bill of my hat concealing all but the blacks of my eyes. I froze into my best motionless. With certainty, he heard the rock thump, but there was a chance he didn't actually see me. If I could hold perfectly still long enough, he may look away for the split second that I'd need to complete the rotation and slide my fully drawn arrow towards him. A minute passed, and then another. I was losing it. In this awkward position, I simply couldn't hold the draw any longer. I had to set it down. The bull stare had not flinched. He had to notice the shaking beginning to develop in my arms and out the bow to the tip of the arrow, which wiggled now like a rod tip pulling a steelhead plug. But how alarmed would he be? Maybe he'd give me enough time to aim and shoot? Not a chance. I remember having that moment of putting the hunter analogy into the story. And I remember I had to, I had to set it down for quite a while because it struck so true and it struck so deeply. Anorexia is a predator. The real hunter next to me. I hadn't quite put that all together. I had these little signposts along my understanding of that disease state, but I hadn't yet identified it as a hunter and as being hunted, which is such a weak position. I am not prey mentality. The prey mentality is very community-based and very reliant upon one another, very safety-oriented and really good at hiding and never speaking up or speaking out or identifying yourself. In some ways, I was not that kind of girl and in many ways, I was absolutely that kind of girl. And the ways in which I recognized that prey response, the quieting and the disappearing, I hated it. But I knew it was true of me historically. I have anxiety. I always feel hunted. If there's a problem, give me the microphone, and I'm happy to speak on anyone's behalf and say what they are uncomfortable saying. I've always held that line and that mantle with some amount of pride, and not from a predator perspective, but from an I'm not afraid perspective, whereas prey speaks to a fear, fear for one's life. Anorexia is a predator from the inside out, a true predator because the end is death. If it's successful, you're done. It's the deadliest of the mental health disorders. It's very effective. And in what it does to your brain, it just becomes this accelerative process. Every moment becomes a little harder and harder to undo. 
A quasar is a black hole that's eaten so much that it just can't handle itself anymore. So it basically vomits, fires into the sky from each of its two poles, and then it just spins so rapidly. You can find them by seeing little pulses of gamma radiation coming from these things, one of the extreme things in the universe. I'd love to find one of those and study it and get to know it and learn everything I can about it, and maybe they'll name, they'll name it after me. Man, I want a quasar named after me. I want to find my own quasar. We found a camping spot along a small creek with willow trees, and that evening drove to a spot where we could see antelope in the distance. We got the guns, camera, and binoculars and walked a short distance to get closer to the herd. The graceful animals were a soft, tawny brown with small curved horns and black markings around their eyes. They looked so peaceful and content, moving slowly across the valley, grazing on sagebrush. I was beginning to regret my decision to hunt them. As I'd hoped, I did look back towards his cows. I rotated left and straightened my torso, sliding my folder towards him further, but he immediately locked back onto me. Lifts his head, looks me in the eye. We left the carnivore and enjoyed the cool Nairobi air as we walked to his car. He opened the doors and we slid into the vehicle. Two men seemingly appeared from nowhere and sandwiched Grace in the back seat. The tables were turned and now it was two women against three men. The three bright stars Alnatak, Alnalam, and Mintaka make up Orion's belt. Alnatak, meaning the girdle, Alnalam is losing mass quickly, a consequence of its size, and Mintaka's name is derived from an Arabic term for belt. In Chinese mythology, these three stars are collectively known as the weighing beam. I immediately thought of the 17-inch waist, which is the weirdest thing. I wouldn't believe it. There are these moments where I'm grateful for the simple metric, you know, the data, because the story would feel so distant. It would feel unreal at this point if I didn't have that 88-pound visual or that 17-inch waist measurement. Because if I looked at that now, I'm not sure I would believe it. If you take a measuring tape and you, well, it's astonishing. The belt was cinched. Orion's belt. So when I was thinking about Orion and reading about it and looking up at the constellation and what people have said about Orion, the thing that came to me is the hunter becoming the hunted. And I just thought, yeah, sometimes that happens in life. I remember thinking as we were agreeing to the ride, we thought we were the hunter. And we hunted this ride, and we got it. And then all of a sudden, two guys sandwiched my friend Grace, and I'm thinking, oh, now we are the hunted. And they hunted. To shift out of prey vulnerability, know your strengths and your enemies' kill points. They are one and the same. As you grow in strength and stature, as you hold the boundaries of yourself, you force him out of your space. 
I had to hold out hope that somehow the tension would de-escalate and he'd present something I could work with. I knew even the slightest movement would send him bolting and then all bets would be off. I reached the end of the page. I'm holding the book in my right hand, my left arm still occupied by the dreaming dog. I realize this is my posture in the field with Angus, shotgun pointing upward at a 45 degree angle, barrel in my left hand, stock lower in the right. To turn the page of my book, I must decide to forego the pleasure, the beautiful pleasure of this semi-embrace with my semi-conscious four-legged best friend. I agonize over this for a few minutes, ignoring the text while trying to read it. As though he knew and realized he should make another in a series of lifelong daily sacrifices for me, sacrifices he yearns to make so strongly that he doesn't understand them as such, he wakes, lifts his head, looks me in the eye, and shifts his neck just enough to free my arm. He erupted into a sprint, angling uphill and away from me. The chase was on. I finally had the chance to stand completely upright and fully anchor my draw. To draw his attention at this point, I launched into a series of my Hail Mary calls. I was talking a thousand words a minute and trying to, hard to mask my fear. Where prey speaks to a fear. My personal favorite, goat bleats, blah, 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 I blurted out. I was talking a thousand words a minute, all the while praying that as a predator, he would not smell the fear that felt like it was pouring out of me. The bizarre sound will often catch animals so off guard that even when fleeing obvious danger, they'll stop to look back, as if to say, wait a minute, what the hell was that? <laughs> the appeal worked to perfection. And as the bull changed direction, he ran a now a bit cross rather than straight away. By the third bleat, he stopped and stared back down at me. I knew he was at 42 yards to begin with, and I aligned my pins in a vertical series of colored dots just behind his shoulder. My pin for 40 yards is green, the 50 is red, and the final is orange, 60 yards. I'm grateful for the simple metric, you know, the data, because the story would feel so distant. I assessed this was close to his range and the max that I would ever shoot. With an open hand, my forward fingers fanned out and pointing at him, I tilted back even a little more, and in a defining moment, my index finger fell, flipping the trigger of my release and launching my arrow on its journey at 300 feet per second. We walked closer. I don't remember much of the next few minutes except my heart was beating faster. I aimed, held my breath, Breathing all but ceases, a sort of compensatory hibernating paralysis holds me in its clutches until something breaks the spell. And I pulled the trigger. I could hear the impact of a hard hit, but it was tough to see exactly where. I didn't have the telltale sound of an open ribs pass through, and I couldn't see anything in the light tanned canvas of the six by six bull's midsection, but I certainly heard my arrow hit something solid. It struck so true, and it struck so deeply. The herd scattered, but my target stood dazed. You hit it, but didn't kill it, my hunter husband said. Before we could reach my prey, it wobbled around until it finally fell. The bull was not going to tip over in front of me. He lunged forward and immediately hooked uphill. He charged away through a group of massive wind-swept dug firs. 
He was a good 100 yards out before I finally got a really good look at him. And per usual, I tore out my camera as I visually tracked him fleeing the area. Hunting with his camera. Looking through and straining to hold the camera steady, my eyes finally confirmed what I'd been desperate to see. The green and white fletchings of my arrow were there, just behind his shoulder. I couldn't watch while he shot it in the heart. I immediately lit up with the possibility of a heart shot. We dragged the poor animal back to the vehicle and I gagged while he cut off its head. The rest of the day was painful for me, but it didn't feel anything. I doubt I ate any dinner. So I was sick physically, and it's a psychological disorder, so who knows where those boundaries are time-wise. It's physical, social, emotional, more. But I was physically ill from the age of 15 to about 21, 22. And during that time, I was just in it and not very reflective. As I reflect back on all my bird hunting trips with Angus, I wonder if music is the only thing that can capture the ineffability of the beauty of these trips. One of my favorite bagpipe tunes poaches this melody. It's been in my head since I was a kid. I play it all the time and imagine Bach watching me and nodding along approvingly in rhythm. It's a fantasy. I've now hunted birds with Angus a full 10 seasons, and we're beginning number 11. At his age, 12, at least I know it's our last together. I'm not sure what he knows, not sure if he's aware of the tumor growing inside him. Collectively, the experiences that make up our hunts have been the most beautiful thing in my life during that time. What does it mean to say this? Maybe I shouldn't talk about it like this. Maybe saying it's beautiful doesn't really mean anything. But I think it does, at least to me. It means that the sensual experiences alone exceed compelling. That's what it means. The landscapes, our affection for one another, mutual honor, effort, expertise, gratitude, worry, pursuit, anticipation, any description falls short of what makes it so pleasurable and beautiful to me. Maybe music is the only thing that could capture the ineffability of the beauty. I know when I'm with Angus looking for birds. Maybe this is why I make videos of our hunts and put music to them.
Maybe I should leave it at that, but as you might guess, I can't. Kim ignored the directions that I had given him to Grace's home and was instead heading in the opposite direction. He ran straight away, then hooked right. As I tried to communicate with him about this, he started explaining to me that he would like me to meet his mother. Even the heavy leather jacket was not enough to keep me warm. Though the chattering of my teeth was more fear-based than induced by the cold, I willed my brain to come up with a solution to this situation that was heading south fast. I told Kim how delighted I would be to meet his mother, but also that his mother may already be in bed by the time we got to his home, and that if she saw me the next morning, she may deem me to be a woman of ill repute. Instead, I suggested that he pick me up the next day, drive me to meet his mother, and thereafter I could spend the night if he so wished. I even proposed that we visit my grandmother, who was sick and in a hospital, in order for me to introduce him to her. I also offered to introduce him to my family on my father's side. It is not true that I was happy to learn that my father is a narcissistic sociopath. It is just that the relief of the diagnosis coming from a licensed, tenured, respected psychologist was so profound that it was nearly indistinguishable from a certain kind of happiness. Knowing this one thing, sans doute, clarified so many disparate parts of my life. It was the puzzle piece I was missing, without which my experiences felt random and cruel and deeply disconcerting. Once out of sight, I held my breath in order to listen as hard as I could for a crash, a thud, a shattering crack, anything that could indicate the bull going down. Those sounds never came, and with regret, I waved off the celebration of victory brewing inside me. I'll be honest, I didn't know how to feel. I mean, everything I could see from the video I'd taken, it looked like the shot was pretty damn good, but just right on the edge of what nags and haunts every hunter's conscience. I was so cranked up initially, thinking that I had a heart shot. The heart of a supernova. And he was gonna be down and out in a matter of seconds. That's the kind of shit every hunter dreams of. The shot that doesn't put a bull down and has never recovered are every hunter's nightmare. The hit was certainly in a great area, but without doubt it was lower than, or, than ideal. Given how low it was, it was also forward and very tight to the shoulder. Bellatrix, Orion's left shoulder. That night, I finally let go of the tension and exhaustion of the hunt and slept soundly in the back of our blazer with the real hunter next to me. In the middle of the night, I woke up. The moon was out and cast a silvery glow over the landscape. The willow leaves rustled, fluttered in the soft breeze. As I looked out the window at the trees above our camp, I saw clearly the head of the antelope in the tree branches. I was tail spinning internally, trying to figure out if I was in a dream or a nightmare. I knew I was wide awake and not dreaming. I don't remember if my husband woke up, but he doesn't remember me pointing out the head in the tree. The next morning, 
The head was back on the hood of the blazer. I don't think antlers ever look as big up close as they do floating gracefully atop a critter's head. Something in all the words that I spoke talked to Kim, and he turned the car towards the direction of Grace's home. I continued to massage and stroke the ego of this predator, lest I become his prey for the night. I told him how proud his mother must be of him, that he sought her approval with the women that he hangs out with. Once we arrived at Grace's house, we could not get out of the car fast enough. We banged on the gate, hoping that Grace's brothers would open it quickly before Kim changed his mind. When I look at Angus, I'm often hit hard by his beauty. School hit me hard. I don't have time to take care of myself, and so I just sit there doing busy work for like my existential life. I don't want to just sit there spinning my wheels in my mind just trying to figure stuff out, but nothing works. And I'm like, why does nothing work? It's physical, social, emotional, more. He wants to connect with me and I with him, but because the language he and I share is so beautifully inexact, our connection is limited to what any attentive but linguistically disconnected couple of beings can share, which is actually a lot. When he drinks his own pee, I understand. Yet, I don't practice this myself. <laughs> One of the most important things that we do not share is the knowledge that each of us will die. This too is in some way part of the beauty I see in him. Then we drove to Paris, Idaho, where my brother-in-law and his wife lived. We had dinner and slept on our camping pads on the floor. Kim offered to sleep on the floor with his friends in a last-ditch effort to complete his mission. I convinced him that Grace's brothers would not accept that proposal, and that morning was only a few hours away. As Kim and his two henchmen drove away and into the darkness, Grace and I chatted into the morning, dissecting the night's events and how we, almost, how we were almost hunted into oblivion by a man we barely knew. How quickly the tables turned. The next morning, when we packed up to head home, the antelope head was missing. We looked everywhere around the area without luck. To this day, we don't know what happened to the antelope head. Maybe a dog got it, or a local kid, or an unsuccessful hunter who wanted a trophy head. But it was gone. Rigel, the right foot of Orion. In Greek mythology, Orion is known as a talented hunter who boasts that he could rid the earth of all the wild animals until he angered the earth goddess Gaia. And she placed a scorpion on the path that he took daily to his hunting grounds. The hunter became the hunted. Orion trod upon the scorpion, which stung him in the foot and killed him. Seriously, you're such a stud and... Diana, goddess of the moon and the hunt, fancied Orion, the greatest mortal hunter. They had often hunted together at night, neglecting her lunar duties, hence the dark nights near the new moon. She insisted that his likeness be memorialized in the sky with his hunting dogs, Canis Major and Canis Minor, at his feet. Rigel, the right foot of Orion.
Perhaps because I think he's beautiful, I can say that I love Angus. I also love the birds he and I try to gang up on and relieve of their existence. But I love them in a different way than I love Angus. Is it the difference between those loves defined maybe as personal versus impersonal or imaginary or idealistic love that allows me to do something I find categorically abhorrent? Is my license to kill located in that space? Or is it an issue of a greater good? It might be a greater good for me to honor Angus's instinctual bird hunting desires and the intensity of the dependent bond between us over the sadness and repulsion I feel when I kill a chucker. Is my making such a big deal about this an attempt at some kind of penance? Confessions and penitence. If it's such a conflict, why do I keep doing it? Even more, why is this my favorite thing to do? I really don't know, and I'm not sure I ever will. Placing Orion in the sky did not please Gaia, who insisted upon similar treatment for the scorpion. Was it not a mighty hunter to slay the great Orion? Every summer, Orion flees as the scorpion comes, but every winter, Orion hunts in the sky. With sloth-like care, I placed each foot, pressing the tip of my toe into the snow and twisting as I applied the weight of each step. I was confident the bull would bed soon. Tuck in for a very long, cold nap. If he was still alive and detected my presence, he could flee again and totally reset the score of probability I'd find him. I could not make any mistakes. In an abrupt swerve, the tracks inexplicably augured into an uphill bank, clearly colliding with a tree. There was fresh bark and pine needles scattered on the snow below branches that antlers would have struck. In harsh tones, the internal voice of anorexia tells me that I would feel fundamentally different if I weighed remarkably less, if I denied myself one thing or another, if I cinched my discipline corset an inch, preferably more. I could imagine in my head that the bull was staggering at this point, pressing to reach his chosen bedding area. The voice holds incredible power. It drove me to a cacophony of outrageous decisions that ultimately resulted in my physical body weighing half of the lowest recommended healthy weight for my height. My eyes were scanning fiercely, hungry to lock on to antler or hide. Trying to confirm tracks or blood, I looked ahead of me on the trail. I told myself, either you are going to continue down this trail and you aren't going to come out alive, or you are going to change. Decide to change. I took a few more steps around a thick young fir tree that revealed a long straight stretch of trail. At the end of this section of trail, 80 yards away, a six by six bull lay on the ground. The voice sneers that peace lies in dimming the lights of the world to black, evaporating obligations and responsibilities and ties that bind. Tuck in for a very long, cold nap, it offers. I froze in my tracks and stared carefully, watching for any movement. I raised my binoculars and studied his form, a silhouette against the snow, 
the object, the object of so much effort, preparation, and hope. And now, from a living and breathing creature of natural perfection, the bull laid still. Eyes lower, then clench. Breathing all but ceases. A sort of compensatory hibernating paralysis holds me in its clutches. Spirit and wind now vacant and void from the massive bulk of his body. His rack now still, left antler stamped into the snow, anchored to the ground like a shipwreck in the distance, vivid on the horizon of a weather-beaten but never forgotten beach. Walking up on a dead animal is always different. With elk, sheer body size is always striking. There's an immediate sizing up of what you'd expected from your previous observations. Usually there is ground shrinkage, because I don't think antlers ever look as big up close as they do floating gracefully atop a critter's head. There is no denying, sometimes a harvest is nothing but sad. It can even bring to surface a questioning if what I did was right, defensible, or justified. It can bring a sense of regret, loss, or the feeling of taking something, a life that was maybe not mine to take. How are those feelings processed? and resolved. We did bring home the meat, but it smelled and tasted like sagebrush. I couldn't eat it. That was my first and last hunting trip, and at that time I was beginning to have symptoms of depression. I'm finding myself a bit off. I'm young. I'm only 20. I don't know who I am as a person, but I like to think I do. It's occurred to me that I haven't spent any time in my life figuring out my values and what I hold important and what I should do about it. And so I'm sitting here kind of like a dummy, a placeholder. And like, I'm here, I have accomplishments, I acknowledge that, and I'm proud of myself for what I've done. I just don't know who I am. I was lethargic, sad, and unmotivated to do anything except take care of my boys, cook, do laundry, and basic things around the house. My husband worked nights, slept during the day, as, and was in meetings or hunting much of the time. Sometimes I felt like a single mother. He was a good husband and provided our family with a nice house, two vehicles, a good income, and he was a good father to our two boys. But I wasn't happy, and when the boys were asleep, I sat numb, not wanting to do anything. In 1977, I finally went to a counselor and he put me on antidepressants, but I still struggled with inertia. One thing I learned through counseling was to change my attitude. At first, I did not believe it would help, but when my husband would take me and the boys in the car to either dinner out or for a drive, I would say with sarcasm, this is going to be great, right? <laughs> or isn't this fun? Not really. But after saying things like this for a while, I began to believe it and began enjoying our outings. The world turns upside down, then right side up again. The sun bursts through the clouds, revealing a way forward. A scene of possibility emerges into view. I also went skiing once a week, which really helped my mood. Being up in the cold, clear air and with all those negative ions, exercising and focusing on my skiing helped me feel less depressed. Going hunting for antelope was another activity which took my focus off my glum mood. I guess I felt hunted by, by my depression, and I was hunting for a way to overcome it. Something substantive, strong, and solid stitches and patches the battle wounds. It feels like self-respect. 
and it provides more strength and sustenance than any father ever could. A few weeks later, after the adrenaline had stopped pumping and life had reverted back to normal, I happened to relate this story to my brother. He quizzed me on Kim's description, and I told him about the unkempt, oily perm, curly perm, his manner of speech and accent. My brother's eyes grew wider and wider before he disclosed to me that Kim was a well-known carjacker and rapist who was well-connected with some rogue law enforcement members who ensured that he got away scot-free when his victims reported him and his predatory behavior. Anorexia is an atypical predator. It seeks the strongest, the brightest, the kindest, the most capable. Anorexia craves the best, so first, it must weaken its prey with the most powerful weapon of all, thoughts. Anorexia usurps the logical processes of the mind, generating a Mobius loop of self-loathing. Starvation is merely a method, one that can further warp the mind with its endless counting, denial, craving, restriction, allowances, guilt, confessions, and penitence. It is a complex death march of religious proportion. My dad's old Galileo telescope is mine now. I use it to stargaze as often as possible. Seeing the stars and constellations is like visiting old friends who tell you the same stories every time you stop by. I can point my telescope at Orion. He will tell me of his hunting days with Canis Major and Minor by his side and Scorpius on his heels. My favorite constellations won't be dim when I sit on my porch with my grandchildren, nor will humans run out of universe to traverse and discover. Its many mysteries will be endlessly sought out through our desire to find. I think that finding is predicated on losing, even if you don't realize you've lost something. It's a reminder that's there for you if you care to notice, which sometimes might be interrupted by another wave of chucker busting. And the thing that's there to notice might or might not be remarkable. It's just there. What do you do with this? What breaks the spell? For me, the urge to hunt comes from somewhere I really can't point to, but it's deep. For me, it's probably the best explanation of why I hunt and maybe the best reason I can come up with for why I continue to want to live. I continue to want to live. It's a fire. A hunger that brings with it a sensation equal just about any kind of thrill known to man, or at least this man. Space and healthy connections, breaking commitments that hold you to unrealistic terms. There are other activities which corral this type of losing finding. Playing music for me is one. The way a champion athlete is hardwired to compete and win. Taking extraordinary risk, cultivating a feeling of being enough. An artist inspired to create their vision, a counselor compelled to seek truth and comfort, or the human drive for lust and physical attraction. Sensory saturation, touch, hot coffee, physical activity, gentle and benign words that cannot be easily twisted or strained. I think there's a kind of addictiveness to these things, an incentive. Love with loads of space. The consistency of space. It was critical to create a this-is-me, this-is-that space. I speak about space a lot, and I think it has to do with that initial millimeter of 
that's not true, what's being said about me. And it's easier to do that if I can separate that from being me. The consistency of space brings a soothing peace to my soul. I know it's always been there, and it always will be. We are always drawn to the most unfamiliar, frightening territories, be it the Milky Way's own black hole, the icy peaks of Mars, or the fiery heart of a supergiant star. No matter what we discover, we'll always manage to find something that's more terrifying, more tantalizing, and more amazing. I stand now with less fear, having scrambled up this treacherous mountain to defeat the predator that feels too often inseparable from myself, the distinction at times impossible to make. I wonder, what other powerful solidity lies within reach from this place? The off-season is hard on many hunters because there is no substitute. We think we might be able to recapture it by reading, looking at photos, shopping for gear, working with our dogs, shooting clays, even hiking in the spring to see how many birds made it through the winter. It's not there. And there's a lurking sense of dissatisfaction that pervades these surrogate things. At this point in the season, I find myself less and less able to fend off the regret of the impending off-season. I'm finding myself a bit off. <laughs> I still struggle with depression from time to time, but antidepressants and estrogen and staying busy keep me sane. I also have been to counselors who've helped me understand why I get depressed and how to overcome it. Come in. Some of the causes are genetic. My mother suffered from depression. Of course, having six children might have been another factor for her. <laughs> I made it through that dark tunnel and became the hunter instead of the hunted. I realized that for that one night that started out just like any other, that though the tables turned and the predators, Grace and I became prey, they turned again and the prey made it out with their lives. And then there's the cycle of dogs. Losing our dogs is an imperial affliction we knowingly set ourselves up for. A loss we know is coming from the day we take the pup from its litter mates or rescue it from the shelter. I want to go into a stellar astronomy because I work with things that have a finite life cycle. They're born in a beautiful, fantastic way in a nebula that combines chemicals and elements that we're good and familiar with, but as soon as they come to life, they burst into flames, and then they create, and then they build themselves up more and more, and then they go supernova and start creating new elements from their death. And those elements are what humans are made of. You know, the iron in our blood is forged in the heart of a supernova. Literally, these things are in my blood. And then it's spread out throughout the universe, waiting for some kind of miraculous event to happen that'll pick it up and use it in some way. As the bell curve of a dog's vitality starts to line up with our own, the, the profit and loss intensifies, like the lowering light in the last month of chucker season. And we're all aware, and it's okay. We've started the season and Angus is doing very well so far. We're just waiting for the tumor to get big enough to kill him. It's strange. That's absurd. But it's real and it happens and it's the story of the universe. It's 
It's integral to everything that's ever happened. That's why I want to be a part of it. I'd like to get caught up in the amazing fantasticalness of the history of the universe. The narrative of space and stars just blows my mind. Losing stuff is better than okay. It just is. It's where the meanings are. For myself, I know I'm meant to be a hunter because this level of drive and lust for the images and encounters my mind creates in daydreams. It's the way I can't ever imagine an outdoor scenario or location where my innate senses don't take over hunting, fishing, or flying on two wheels. Literally, these things are in my blood. The hunting instinct is a fundamental drive within me, so I know it's genuine, defensible, and even a source of incredible pride and acknowledgeable satisfaction. I picked up those pieces prior that were strong and outspoken and fearless and not afraid to stand in front of a room and say, I'm something you may not like and I really don't give a shit because what I have to say matters anyway. It was identifying the predator, the hunter within, and disidentifying that from me, pulling the hunter out without just being left as prey. So much of hunting is about loss. Pulling the hunter out. I never thought of myself as a hunter. I know I'm meant to be a hunter. The hunter turned hunted. I'm hunting the elusive truth of the cosmos. My name is Bob. Don. Glida. Brian. Salome. Sierra. The hunter. Or the hunter. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department. 
This program also receives funding from the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Boise State Public Radio and Radio Boise, and the Starry Story Night show sponsor, Everything CPAP. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari, and our musical guests were the Boise Phil Brass Quintet. You can support this storied program, get tickets to our live shows, or become one of our storytellers yourself at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Story Story Night. <laughs>